So you guys, I learned from Donald Trump at the debate last night about the new hacker threat. So we thought all along that it was like a guy sitting in his parents' basement that was the real hacker, you know, ordering pizza. It's someone who weighs 400 pounds sitting on a bed. Yeah, Are those that's mutually who he said, exclusive things. What's it, though, it's very specific. He was very. He said, mm-hmm. "Who hacked the DNC?" He doesn't think it's Russia. It doesn't necessarily be, may not be Russia. It could be China. It could be someone who weighs four hundred pounds sitting on a bed. Right. Not not like not three hundred pounds, and not in the basement. Although I suppose the bed and could not be in sitting the basement. on a couch, sitting on a bed. Did you see what the CrowdStrike people tweeted in response to this? CrowdStrike, who's investigating the DNC? Hack? Yeah. So CrowdStrike, who did and the traced the, it to Russia and traced it to to Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear. Uh, Dmitry Alperovich of, of CrowdStrike tweeted last night during the debate, our team at CrowdStrike has begun the work of tracking the notorious 400-pound hacker overweight bear. <laughs> if you're 400 pounds, isn't that obese bear? Well, I mean, your BMI is probably a little above the I feel like for a bear, animal. though. Like, okay. like a bear, that might be a healthy yeah, weight. That not, might be a fighting weight bear for a shame. bear. Exactly. Bears, don't fat shame bears. That might be like a really like underweight bear, actually. That bear's not eating enough. I, I just want to know, like, why are we fat shaming hackers now? <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, 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 aren't they sort of because by Donald Trump fashions everybody? Yeah. So many questions from this debate. Uh, okay. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the 400 pound guy on a bed edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. We could have also called this the 400 pound bear on a bed edition. Yeah, we could, but, but, you know. That was not the image Trump conveyed. No, that was not. That was not. Something tells me that people searching for 400-pound men on a bed um, and reaching rational oh. security may have been looking for something else. <laughs> <laughs> that's but, going to give but you all if, kinds if of If that's results. you, welcome. welcome. Stick around. Hello. We hope you leave us a five-star rating on iTunes, <laughs> though we are, may not be what you had in mind. Exactly. <laughs> we hope that we satisfy all kinds of other um, urges and cravings and curiosities that you didn't even know you had. Uh, I'm here in the studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hey. Hi, Shane. And we were all up. Were you guys all up late watching the debate? I was. Yeah. I actually started watching it 30 minutes late because we were out having dinner with a friend, and so I DVR'd it. And so I'm like watching on Twitter everything that's about to come up and then watching it happen. It was kind of a weird time warp That experience. is a weird it's experience. Like, I prepped myself to know what to really watch for. That's like the way I watch the State of the Union. Which is I thought you just read it. No, so I I read it later, but in real time I only watch the Twitter traffic of it. I don't oh, actually watch wow. the okay. address, and so and then I live tweet the Twitter tra- the meta sort of state of the union, uh, and it's a really good way to experience it. And then then I read the speech. Do you comment on it while you're? Yeah, I, I sort of do. I call it the mm. the, the meta so too. Okay. Um, he comments on the commentary wow. because that's really. What's what's worth focusing on? You know, I was out just before the debate started uh, bringing in dinner for the family, and it was this weird hush had fallen over my northwest Washington neighborhood, and everybody was off the streets. It was kind of like Thanksgiving, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Only no one was giving thanks. Yeah. <laughs> they were praying, Yes, perhaps. everyone was home praying in front of their television. Yeah. Well, this week on the podcast, of course, it was the debate. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump faced off in the first of three presidential debates. We're going to talk about what they had to say on ISIS, hackers, other important national security issues. Plus, a Trump advisor went off to a trip to Moscow and met with senior government officials. Hmm. 
We'll talk about that too. Interesting. Uh, really interesting. Plus object lessons. Um, first, let's dive into the debate. Um, this was at a Hofstra University. Les Troll was the moderator. By now, everyone's probably watched it. Let's kind of um, let's take piece by piece the national security uh, uh, part of the discussion because that was a, roughly a third of, of the discussion. That was as planned. It was going to be in theory. In theory, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were probably what three and a half to four minutes. Of right, exactly. So we're going to give it its due now. But, um, uh, Ben, maybe you want to start by just sort of, you know, if you want to give us some initial reactions, but let's also maybe talk first about the Iran, Iraq, and maybe throw in Syria aspects of this too. Well, so the Iran subsection was, uh, I think, simple and straightforward, which is that Donald Trump thinks the Iran deal sucks and blames Hillary Clinton for it. Hillary Clinton thinks the Iran deal is important and uh, uh, takes an appropriate uh, amount of credit for it. That is, you know, being not there when it was, uh, you know, consummated and signed. But uh, and part- also pointed out that Trump didn't have an alternative to the deal. Correct. Um, the Iraq Syria part of it is is more complicated. They they both agree that we need to crush ISIS. They. Uh, uh, Trump blames Hillary Clinton for uh, creating the vacuum in which ISIS was created, uh, which is, by the way, a step back because until relatively recently, he was insisting that she and Barack Obama were the co-founders of ISIS. And, you know, so he was actually, I thought, intentionally more measured on that point, uh, did not conspicuously did not reiterate that ridiculous suggestion, but framed it in a fashion that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, more reasonable people might might find reasonable. Um, and she gave some indication, although not very much, of what her strategy would be toward fighting ISIS. Uh, he gave none, except for the implication was a lot of bombs. And she also emphasized the importance of working with Muslim state partners uh, and pointed out uh, the difficulty of his doing so, given how offensively he's talked about Muslims. I, I think that is sort of the extent of it. it, it yeah, did, was I, there more there, said? I think there were a few other little nuances. And, you know, it, this was the the topic area of the debate where – um, we didn't quite know what to expect from Trump because on the one hand, on the trail, we've heard a lot of bombast. On the other hand, he really has not developed any substantive policies on most of the national security issues at stake in the campaign. And so, you know, it was sort of – there were two very divergent paths he could have taken here. One is to fade in the background and the other was to be incredibly bombastic. And I actually think he tried to thread a middle path um, – but sh- there were a couple things that that came out to me. Uh, the first was that he really, truly doesn't have a plan on ISIS and he doesn't want to have a plan on ISIS. And he wants to somehow say that it's enough that he has good intentions on ISIS uh, and that we should trust him. And weirdly, that General Douglas MacArthur would not like the fact that Hillary Clinton put 
her four speeches about how to combat ISIS and her full plan to combat ISIS on her website. I thought because, that was... Because MacArthur never talked in public about <sighs> his intentions or plans like when well, he Well, he said, never put them on his website, well, Ben, like did when, he? And, and, when, <laughs> and, and when he was leaving the Philippines, you know, he didn't say anything like, I shall return. <laughs> right. But the, but the other thing that really struck me was... The way in which Hillary Clinton managed to work the, the point about allies, not just Muslim allies, but NATO allies into the discussion of this, the fight against ISIS and the broader struggle in the Middle East, because it's it, it seems an obvious point to make to the American public that we don't want to do this all by ourselves and we need help from our friends. And so you can't diss our friends. But then Trump's response was, well, NATO isn't helping in the Middle East, which is just preposterous mm -hmm. given the extent of participation of NATO members in the anti-ISIS coalition and in doing things like training the Iraqi army on the ground right now. And also, what's the only time in NATO history where they've invoked Article 5? Right. Wow. Which 9 Right, which she did point out. So uh, <laughs> to me, you know, whenever they did manage to get into the details on any issue, he revealed how little he actually knew, just yeah. the basic facts that he didn't know. But uh, there weren't very many moments like that in this debate. No, like one of the things I think is sort of interesting about this, do you have a plan to defeat ISIS and, and should you be telling someone? It's sort of, it's as if everybody thinks that like nobody has any idea what to do here, right? right. Like we're all like Obama's just sitting in the Oval Office, like looking at lots of different lists being like, I don't know, guys. I mean, look, I, broadly, I think people uh, sort of understand and agree uh how ISIS will be defeated, right? There's the question of um, uh, defeating kind of the, the physical caliphate. Um, we're doing a pretty good job. Right. That clearly Don't look now. But ISIS is actually in the process of being defeated. Right. Right. I mean, look, it's um, it's uh, there might be controversy about, you know, um, who supports what. But but obviously it requires military means. And, and they've been pretty successful in essentially killing more people each month than they're recruiting. Right. I mean, it's sort of it's it's attrition. It's uh, it's uh, seizing territory. And so that's not um, uh, the mere fact of the plan is not controversial. Then there's this broader second question of, well, once you sort of defeat the the physical caliphate the territorial isis what happens to the ideology that is a more complex question um but it doesn't seem like that's the plan anybody's talking about i mean she referenced it a little bit with this notion of online radicalization and and uh, partnering with um uh with muslim majority countries um but really it's sort of it's as if um it's as if both candidates were sort of agreeing that like there was they just needed to come up with a plan as opposed to uh, expressing kind of the the nuance of you know the the place in which we really need to talk about a plan is actually this much more uh, much broader more difficult question of you know combating homegrown radicalization you know detecting threats and uh, you know that's not really a question of come up with a plan or not it's you know at this point sixteen years of sort of our most vexing national security policy issue. By the way, there is an excellent piece on lawfare. I believe, as of yesterday by Dan Byman uh, about the fact that, you know, don't look now, but but ISIS is really their position on the battlefield is really deteriorating and uh, raising the question of what comes next after the strategic defeat of ISIS as a landmass holding country and, uh, and entity. So, you know, 
one of the things that that neither of the candidates mentioned was that you know uh, while we could still find a way to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, we are actually in a position right now to to make a serious. Uh, serious strategic blow against against ISIS. She could have, but honestly, I feel as though the nature of last night's discussion of of the anti-ISIS fight is reflective of the fact that for the American public, the anti-ISIS struggle is a homeland struggle. That's, you know, Trump is trying to use it as a way of just reinforcing his point that life in the United States sucks and Americans aren't safe. And so, you know, we don't win we anymore to, and we right. don't win anymore. So you got to <clears throat> you got to elect me and we'll have a big change. And, you know, and and Hillary Clinton was talking last night, as you pointed out, Susan, much more about the anti-ISIS fight in the region and not about this homeland struggle, but the public opinion concern is about vulnerability at home. It's about lone wolves. It's about the people that we don't know where they're coming from, and so we don't see them coming. It's And it's a much harder threat to combat. So one almost wishes that these uh, topics could be broken up in a debate and spoken about separately, homeland defense on the one side and you know the war in the Middle East on the other. But I, I doubt that it will ever get enough discussion in a debate to even warrant that. And I think that, I think you're right. And and that kind of broad sort of, you know, pick from the buffet of issues has tended to help Trump very well in debates up to now, where there's been a dozen people on the stage. But when it's one person, you have to fill ninety minutes. It's not going to work. I think it's not going to work for him in terms of people who he's going to have to persuade to vote for him that he has reasonable ideas or even reasonable critiques. Like, or even any ideas. Or any ideas. He really, yeah. I mean, he really missed an opportunity. It seems to me last night to go after her for a number of like pick a foreign policy failure. He, he, he never mentioned Benghazi. Did he, he mention did, Benghazi he didn't talk once? About Libya. He didn't talk about Benghazi. He mentioned not, Libya like not that, passing. not that she's <clears throat> actually vulnerable. But, but, on but Benghazi he did talk particular. about the Iraq War vote and. I think that he, you know... Well, he, he tried to say that he wasn't actually for the war, and Lester Holt said repeatedly, no, the record shows you were. And he just insisted, like, oh, no, I said something on a Howard Stern show. And then I told Sean Hannity the opposite. Well, Sean Hannity himself has said there's no transcripts of such an interview. I mean, that's... Well, look, I mean, he, he has this problem in this arena that he wants to portray her as simultaneously weak and an intervention and you know and an aggressive interventionist and one of those actually may be true that he is an anti-interventionist in in most respects insofar as there's a coherence to his viewpoint and she is does believe in a sort of robust farm you know foreign policy and military policy um, those two portrayals of her simultaneously do not coexist. She, you, you can't say, um, you're, you're an advocate of, you know, aggressive military posture overseas and look, you're so weak and you have no, you know, and I, and I think there is just a, there is a, a mismatch between the two central themes of the way he's trying to portray. And can we just but talk the, about the white that why that is though? I think this is it was just so evidence last night. 
He's not thinking about this stuff. He's just saying what's on the top of his mind. Right. And look, last night, he said you've been fighting ISIS all your whole adult life. Your whole adult life. What the hell was that? <laughs> I mean, like, what you saw on display last night was a man who who has told you, I did not prepare for this debate, and came in and didn't have shit to say about anything. He never brought up immigration. He never mentioned Obamacare. I mean, this is something who just came in and just pfft, kind of farted it out from his head. And, like, of course he's holding two contradictory ideas about her. He's never thought that deeply on right, it. And he holds contradictory ideas himself. I mean, <clears throat> one of the sort of the, the most interesting um, exchanges and most relevant kind of national security exchanges is, um, you know, Lester Holt asked uh, the candidates to comment on um, Obama's recent decision to um, continue our first use policy. So the idea that um, uh, the United States retains the uh, the option of uh, uh, being the first one to use a nuclear weapon in, um, in appropriate circumstances. Um, this is something that was actually relatively controversial. Um, uh, it wasn't necessarily clear uh, that Obama was going to continue this policy versus saying, um, you know, no, we're going to sort of step back, take a step towards kind of the global zero position and, and say we would not be the first to use a nuclear weapon. Really went um, sort of all in on a, on a uh, more traditional model of deterrence. Um, so whenever uh, Trump was asked the question first, and I actually think sort of um, it's not clear he knows what the term meant. No, um, I think he blundered into the right answer, yeah. actually, ignorantly and blindly blundered into the right answer. But interesting, his answer was that he wouldn't use nuclear weapons first and that they but are he said sort of that he, he, he said, said he would, he would take would. nothing off the table. Right. I mean, it's just, he said he wouldn't rule it out. So he he basically agreed with Obama without saying that he agreed with Obama and without demonstrating that he understood what the question was. And had was no about. idea that he did those things. Right, <laughs> right. So I want to bring up what I think is the most important national security issue that is not explicitly a national security issue that they discussed, and that's the temperament <laughs> issue. You know, I think the fundamental national security concern about Donald Trump is only secondarily ideational, these sort of crazy things he believes. The first and foremost one is the belief, which I certainly have, that he's not essentially normal emotionally and that he's a little bit too crazy to be president or maybe a lot too crazy to be president. Um, and that a lot of this ideational stuff is just expressions of a, a larger uh, narcissistic is kookiness it? that that makes him sort of unfit. And I think she actually did a remarkably good job of bringing that out, mm -hmm. culminating in his ranting about <clears throat> what a wonderful temperament he has. And, you know... He didn't repeat what is still my favorite line of the entire Trump campaign, which was when he was asked whether he has too thin a skin, saying, no, no, I have wonderful, good, thick skin. <laughs> but, but, but he did say... Rhinoceros-like skin. Yeah, no, no. He, he wonderful. said he had one good, re really good skin, good, thick skin. Um, and um, But he did do the temperament equivalent of that, of... You know, talking about I've got a temperament that's about winning and he's ranting like a crazy person about what a great temperament he has. Mm -hmm. And to me, if, you know, look, I'm not a swing undecided voter, um, but I, I predict that the image of a person, you know, 
ranting and raving about how wonderful his temperament is, is the kind of thing that will stick with people. I gotta say, I'm not sure you're right. Because I, I feel, first of all, I'm not sure everyone would define what they saw as ranting and raving, especially because he's been doing that for over a year. So it's sort of normalized. That's how people expect Donald Trump to act. And he wasn't over the top relative to his normal. In fact, he was a little calmer than normal. But I think when we talk talk about judging uh, temperamental fitness, we have to ask what it is about Donald Trump's unbalanced personality that makes him unfit. I don't think it's the narcissism. There were two things that really struck me. One was how quick his temper was. He clearly started out calm and with an intention to be calm, but it literally took 15 minutes before the first time he interrupted her and then he couldn't stop interrupting her. And you're right, by the end, he was sort of back to normal Donald Trump form, Um, but he escalated. He went off the rails quickly and he escalated them through the rest of the 90 minutes. And the other thing that struck me over and over again is not just how little he knows, Shane, but how deeply incoherent each sentence he uttered was. He can't seem to get a thought from the beginning of a sentence to the end, much less from the beginning of a paragraph to the end. And to me, that is a, a temperamental flaw or a cognitive flaw for a president, because the one thing you want more than anything else is that the person can think clearly and this guy clearly cannot although i will i will say in defense of not being able to speak clearly you know that was something that was always said about hw george hw bush too you know and he had there was a whole book published of of bushisms which was you know just paragraphs of him sort of sounding disjointed and uh, you know malapropisms and um and it was never like this, though. It was never shooting off in six different directions. I don't know. Like Do this. you remember the hey, hey, nihama, nihama, hey, hey, hi, hi, heil, a kind of Hitler salute, which was him greeting Chinese tourists on the, at Lafayette Square. And, you know, there, the New Republic at one point even wrote a long article entitled, Is There Something Wrong With the President's Brain?, which was about whether he might have aphasia. Um, and... George H.W. Bush was an extremely smart guy who thought very clearly and very strategically and and was a good tactical thinker. He just had stage yeah, fright and nervousness. Yeah, backing up exactly. all those smart that smartness. There's which other indicia. The present was, candidate has a different track. Record. Right. I mean, he was the director of the CIA. I mean, I, I don't think he was he wasn't coming into it to sort of prove a point. I actually, I, I do think this issue of temperament is um, is an important one. Um, but I actually think it's uh, it's more important um, for Hillary's perspective. Actually, how uh, Donald acted in the debate. Um, it was her opportunity um, uh, to show how she handles these kinds of men. Um, so I would imagine um, that uh, women who have been uh, uh, had professional careers probably um, watched the debate uh, with a little bit of, of a smile or, or sort of a different perception um, because they know what it's like to be talked over and interrupted again. I don't know again. what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think of something I wanted to say. <laughs> 
<laughs> all right, all right. Um, you know, and that this this really is. I mean, it's experience. I, I would imagine. <laughs> I'm gonna throw something at you because I am not presidential, and I would throw something. But Hillary didn't, right? Um, she sort of she uh, a few times she kind of went after him. Um, but you know, look, whenever you think about the president, you think, um, what are they going to look like in a room with Vladimir Putin? In a room with you know the, the president of the Philippines, who's been um, you know sort of has a similar sort of sensibility, right? How do they control? Um, you know, irrational or um, or people that are sort of politicking, you know, wildly at odds, right? How, how do you how do you control those people? How do you stay on your own message, right? Are those people able to knock you off your game or are you able to kind of stick to it? And so I actually think that, you know, well, yes, uh, the idea of Donald Trump being president is its own problem. It was also a moment to look at Hillary Clinton as a president. Um, and I actually think she did rather well, sort of the, the beginning of the debate. I thought he knocked her off her game a little bit. She she wasn't quite sure if she should engage or ignore. By the end of the debate, I, I saw President Hillary Clinton, right? Um, somebody says something crazy and she sort of smiles serenely and says, well, okay, this is reality and this is the, my The little decision. shoulder shimmy, just like Taylor Swift, she shook it off. Exactly. Yep, she did. I mean, she did. And like, and I think that that was, um, uh, that was the case that Hillary needed to make. Um, those are the kinds of images that because there hasn't been a female president, uh, people, you know, that's the, that's the, she doesn't look like a president. She doesn't have the stamina, right? It's uh, That was her moment to demonstrate um, I am presidential. This is what it looks like when a woman gets things yeah. done, controls the conversation, controls the stage. So for that alone, um, I think sort of her his lack of temperament or his bad temperament was, you know, to her yeah. benefit. I think she was probably not sure whether teleprompter Trump or ranty, crazy, easily provoked Trump would show up. They both did. They both did. And I'm, th- I'm sure she's very glad that the second one is the one who stayed around for most of the debate because well, she so just I, sat there I, and watched I him think she, I think she uh, pulled that one out of the closet where Donald Trump had stuck it yeah. because she made that early reference to his dad loaning him money. And you could <laughs> see his face. And yep. from then on, it was off to the races. yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, speaking of Trump and off to the races, Trump advisor Carter Page, and we should put like advisor in air quotes, and we'll talk about why in a second. Uh, but Carter Page, who is an individual who uh, purports to have business ties and connections in Russia, and importantly, is someone that Donald Trump has publicly identified as one of his foreign policy advisors, um, apparently is being watched by the U.S. intelligence community. <laughs> Uh, there was a really eye-popping story by uh, Michael Isikoff in Yahoo News last week that said U.S. intelligence is probing, I think the word was, um, what these meetings that Carter Page had back in July in Moscow with senior Russian government officials were all about, whether he was meeting with individuals who are under U.S. sanctions following the invasion of Crimea, and is Carter Page on behalf of Donald Trump trying to open some kind of back-channel uh, making promises perhaps about sanctions that might be lifted in a Trump administration as he conducting foreign policy. Really want to see the Logan Act get trotted out. The Logan Act is Come not on, get the, the attention Act, it deserves. The poor, dusty Logan Act. Uh, but Susan, let's start with this question of like, so this, there's a lot that was in this story. And this question raised, story raised a ton of questions. The first of which being, okay, well, how would the United States intelligence community know that a U.S. citizen was meeting and conversing with Russian uh, officials? And, of course, there are rules about that. Um, uh, there's ways they could have found out. What, what about that and kind of what piqued your interest on that score? 
Right. So there's sort of there's two stories here, right? There's there's kind of the the initial report, um, which uh, was apparently contained in an intelligence briefing to members of Congress, and then there's kind of the follow up story. Um, so you almost have to think about them differently. One is kind of taking that report on its face, and then the second is the implications of uh, if it's wrong and and um, uh, how that might reflect on the campaign. So sort of um, taking the question on its face of how uh, right. So if an individual is actually meeting with um, with sanctioned individuals in Russia who has ties to the Kremlin. Um, this is whenever people talk about um, incidental collection of a U.S. person. This is what incidental collection usually looks like, right? Uh, you have a target, um, and I have no idea, of course, if the United States actually had targeted um, these people. But, um, you know, say you had a target who was, uh, you know, the kind of high-value foreign intelligence uh, target one might expect, say, a, an individual, high-ranking individual at the Kremlin or, or closely um, uh, closely connected to Vladimir Putin, um, if that person then starts talking to a U.S. citizen, a U.S. person, about, uh, let's say, the future of sanctions policy, right, or their representations, um, <clears throat> there's a uh, there's a very complex sort of series of events that occurs from sort of the moment that um, you're kind of in the world of, um, uh, you know, just foreign intelligence collection, and then as soon as a U.S. person um, becomes involved, and this is a pretty good example of um, ordinarily, <clears throat> if it's a U.S. person, uh, sort of minimization procedures are applied such that um, uh, their communications and identity sort of goes away, um, unless, of course, um, they are uh, an agent of a foreign power or, or, or are actually engaging in um, in espionage. Or the um, identity is relevant to the foreign intelligence, which in this case, I think it would be. Right. Um, which is sort of, that's kind of the jaw-dropping part of the story, right? Like that oh my God, like we're in 2016 is so crazy that the U.S. intelligence community, even plausibly, uh, you know, a campaign advisor or advisor in air quotes is potentially an individual of foreign intelligence value. That's like, I mean, it's it's really stunning. Okay, but, que but question for you all. Um, there, a, a campaign has a lot of hangers on. Right. People who have some <laughs> affiliation for example, in our presence today, Tamara is a an advisor, a volunteer foreign advisor. Ad foreign policy advisor, and these people have for Donald Trump, for Donald Trump, <laughs> and these people for Harambe, <laughs> for the giant meteor. Um, these people have other lives, and so my question is: How clear is it that a Carter Page was in Moscow in some sense representing Donald Trump. And number two, who the hell is this guy and how does he end up being a campaign advisor to Trump and how should we understand that in reference to his other uh, freelancing foreign policy initiatives? Yeah, well, so I think the second question is an interesting one because you're right. Campaigns do have a lot of hangers on. Um, I didn't mean to suggest you were a hanger on. No, no, by the way. but you know, but one of the interesting things about the Trump campaign is how difficult it's been for them to generate or uh, reveal a list of foreign policy advisors that's more than you know a half a dozen yeah. people or so. It actually seems like it's and a this pretty is one that small... he called out himself right. in a Washington Post editorial board interview. Right, he this said year. this is one of my guys, yeah. and. There aren't that many of them. So whereas on the Hillary Clinton campaign, there are literally hundreds of people who would fall into that category. And so it's both a reminder of how thin his bench is, but also of, you know, it is a suggestion that this guy could have some influence. And 
But I would say that I do think that the burden is on the individual foreign policy advisor when they are engaging with a foreign national. To be clear, I'm not speaking on behalf of the campaign or this meeting is in the context of the campaign and to clarify between that role and other roles. Um, that's That I think is normal practice. And it's very telling to me that Carter Page in the wake of this media reporting then said, well, I didn't do anything wrong, but anyway, I've resigned from my position in the campaign because he realized belatedly, I guess, the need to separate whatever his private interests may be and uh and the candidate well so let's and let's talk about in that like so who the hell is carter page and for this i, I really recommend to people uh a terrific piece in politico that julia yaffe wrote <clears throat> just a terrific reporter great writer knows a lot about russia as people of the po- listening to the podcast will know <clears throat> where basically julia went and tried to answer this question by talking to people in the world of russian business energy energy policy, energy markets, these places that he professes to be a part of, and could basically find very few people who had ever heard of him. And the ones who had said essentially he was a very low-level junior kind of backbencher guy. He's sort of maybe he's inflated his resume a little bit, but what has certainly happened is that his reputation, or I shouldn't say his reputation, but just his name recognition has been given this, you know, extraordinarily outsized um, um, uh, attention because of Donald Trump mentioning him as a foreign policy advisor. And so as she, what, what she kind of starts to unpack here is the possibility, which I find fascinating, that Carter Page is essentially not a nobody, but kind of like one or two rungs above being a nobody and is, you know, maybe on the make and trying to build a career. Somehow he gets roped in with Donald Trump. And these meetings with Russian government officials, which a congressional source told her definitively did occur, could be the Kremlin deciding, well, let's find out who this guy is. Let's bring him in. Let's talk to him about what he knows about Trump. There may be all kinds of like wheels within wheels here is what I'm saying, or that maybe the Kremlin wants people to think that it's channeling or back channeling through Carter Page, or maybe Carter Page simply traded on Donald Trump's quasi endorsement of him and said, hey, can I get a meeting um, with the head of, you know, ex Russian energy company, and is just using Trump to, to, to bolster himself in Moscow. Right. So I actually think that that, um, I, that strikes me as the more plausible uh, explanation, um, especially sort of in light of Julie, Julia's very um, in-depth reporting. Um, but I actually think that's really significant um, because it goes to sort of the um, the legal concept of actual and apparent authority. Um, and this is the notion of like, when do you, uh, when can you hold a, an employer responsible for what their employers or contractors do? Well, if you actually tell them they speak on your behalf, um, or if you vest them with the apparent authority where somebody who was speaking to them would think that they were authorized to do what they were doing. Um, In the context of the president of the United States um, and and in the context of of serious campaigns, um, assigning your sort of uh, public seal of approval by citing someone as your advisor um, is a really consequential uh, action, uh, precisely for this reason, because it it vests somebody, um, maybe not with the authority to actually negotiate on your behalf, but to say, this person is my person. This person speaks to me. This person speaks for me. Um, And that really is, um, that's why it's really 
really important that presidents take their advisors seriously, um, that they not just pop off with any name that comes to mind because they couldn't think of anyone else. Um, that's why we want sort of um, our, our presidents exercising um, really good judgment, because, of course, they're not the only person that's going to be able to speak on behalf of the United States. There's lots of people, both in official and occasionally in unofficial capacities that do all kinds of sort of um, advanced work on diplomacy and and have relationships that are consequential to this country. Um, And and so I think that this is sort of an example of why, you know, Trump's sort of approach to this thing is a serious problem because it ends up, um, you know, sort of vesting kind of both a nobody, but also someone who uh, lacks the judgment to not go to Russia, Mm -hmm. right? um, And gave speeches in Russia, by the way, critical of U.S. foreign policy. Exactly. So, someone who's not going to be responsible. It gives them the authority. And that itself is a problem. So where does this go from here? So you have what, what we know, right, is that our intelligence services got information about his doing some business in Russia in a quasi-Trump capacity or maybe in a – um, and he is now resigned from the campaign to which he was a hanger on. They, uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, really disclaimed him, claimed to have never heard of him. Yet apparently in... gave permission. They authorized this trip in the non-Trump capacity. Right. So my question is, as an intelligence investigation, where what's the plausible range of possibility that happens from here? Look, it seems pretty clear that the investigation has been handed over to the FBI or that Congress is asking the FBI to investigate, uh, not page by name, but sort of the question of the ties. Um, anything that is about foreign intelligence value, right? So what uh, foreign actors are doing outside the United States, the, the intelligence community will um, continue to, to monitor that investigation. Anything that's occurring domestically within the United States is a question for the FBI. Um, so pl- my guess is that um, the FBI will open an investigation. Um, the the two sort of um, plausible crimes here, which again are not so plausible. You know, one is a violation of the Logan Act, which um, has never been there's never been a successful prosecution, and only one successful indictment. Um, that's an, an unauthorized individual um, uh, conducting uh, foreign uh, foreign affairs on behalf of the United States. Um, the other is uh, potential violations of things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Um, so these are laws that apply to uh, right, um, uh, the Foreign uh, Agents Registration Act. So, um, uh, so, so uh, it depends on what the nature of his relationship. Like if we found out that he was advocating on behalf of Russians back in the United States, he would have violated FARA potentially. Exactly. So, if in the course of these meetings, he, um, you know, the, these Kremlin officials said, you know, here's our policy, and you're going to take this policy and, and represent it to the campaign or to the United States, um, or, or uh, indeed, um, his participation in the campaign is itself political activity that's barred by FARA. Um, now, look hard questions have come up about Paul Manafort um, whenever he was the campaign manager. Uh, you know, the, so there are um, potentially some serious ramifications for Farah, And then there are also laws that apply to private citizens who do business abroad. Um, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act bars, um, you know, essentially bribing people. Bribery can include um, offering political favors, things like that. Um, so there's uh, there is potential criminal conduct. I'd be pretty surprised if um, uh this sort of it's uh, the investigation really went anywhere um he has written an open letter to jim comey saying stop investigating me which i 
Can't well, imagine well, it work. The political <laughs> aspects of this, though, that's that's where I think this goes, right? I mean, also let's let's be clear. I mean, it certainly appears. I mean, you know, from the Yahoo News story that there are plenty of people who are <laughs> leaking uh, these intelligence reports or, or knowledge about them to the press. Um, one can speculate if you read between the lines of the story where it's coming from. Um, they are certainly people who would like to see Hillary Clinton be elected president. And I think what the, part of this speaks to is you clearly detect, now it's out in the open, uh, a, a, a feeling among senior members of Congress, particularly on the intelligence community with Adam Schiff and Diane Feinstein, that there is a need to call out Russia for the hacking of the DNC, for interference in the election, for meddling in politics. They have gone much farther than the White House has gone. They seem to have abandoned hope that the president's actually going to name and shame Russia and are sort of now taking that upon themselves. I think this, this you know, fits into a piece of that where they're more than happy to have stories about Trump advisors meeting with people. Um, it was very interesting in the very last paragraph of Mike Isikoff's story that one of the people that Carter Page is said to have met with is a senior Russian official named Igor Devakin, <clears throat> who I can find basically nothing about, but who is said to be believed by uh, U.S. officials of being the person who is overseeing the collection of information about the U.S. election, which was sort of an eye-popping. He's the 400-pound guy on He's the bed. He's the 400-pound guy on the bed in Russia, in the yeah. Dacha. Yeah, well, and it, it was also striking to me last night, um, taking back to the debate for just a second, that Trump really worked hard to avoid acknowledging that Russia might have been responsible for the DNC hack. Yes. I mean, the origin of this 400 guy on the bed line was a sort of desperate attempt to argue that, it well, it could have been anyone. We just don't know. Right. And, you know, if you are a, a serious presidential candidate running to win the votes of American voters, why would you do that? Why would you go to such lengths to avoid tagging Russia with responsibility unless, indeed, there's something to all of these allegations about ties between Trump and Russia? Yeah, and I think that – and to that point, too, about the sort of coming up with plausible explanations for who else it could be, which I agree with you, Tammy, look desperate – you know, there is practically consensus in the intelligence community among experts <clears throat> that the Russians or their their uh, personnel were behind this. And the idea that it was just that we're all being played, I mean, it's within the realm of logical possibility, I suppose, technically, but not, I don't think, in this case. point is, nobody really believes that. And I think you're exactly right. Why not come out there and just, you can be skeptical about it, but to sort of, sort of reflexively defend you know, Putin and defend, defend Russia, which the campaign has always done, you know, it's raises a host a of questions. It's a politically weird seems, choice. Yeah, exactly. Because really, what, what percentage of the American voting public are you winning over by saying, you know, we need to defend Russia? It's, it's, it doesn't make so a I lot think, of sense. So I think the fact of the leaks itself is also um, uh, pretty significant um, in terms yeah. of uh, it, it appears that the intelligence community is very spooked. Um, uh, look, Congress is a notoriously leaky organization, so it wouldn't be the first time an, an You mean intelligence... spooked by the leaks? Uh, no, that they are spooked by the activity. By the activity. Um, so um, it's, it's not unusual for um, a very strong intelligence to indicate, you know, that a foreign leader is doing something or right sort of um, uh, to have a slightly different take on sort of headline news. Um, 
<clears throat> and uh, and then to hear the president say things that that are um, it's the spin on that right there there's some um, space between sort of the the raw intelligence and and the the ultimate presentation and um, uh, there's <clears throat> there's a lot of sort of respect for the chain of command and also sort of a, a an understanding that you know um, intelligence is just sort of it's one source it's not the definitive thing and that the the, the president and the executive branch need um, need space to make judgments about how to present things in this case um, I think what you're seeing is um, is an intelligence community that has grown deeply uncomfortable with the disconnect between what they are seeing, the strength of what they are seeing, um, and, and sort of the quantity of what they're seeing, and, uh, and what the, uh, the, the president and the National Security Council is saying, which is essentially nothing. Um, I have to say, you know, the, uh, the director of NSA begins each morning with what's known as the stand-up. Literally, everybody sort of his senior leadership stands in a circle, and they go around the room and say, you know, good morning, sir, in Afghanistan this morning, and they run down. I would pay a lot of money to have been a fly on the wall the morning that they said good morning sir in Russia this morning and um, we have indication that one of the one of Donald Trump's campaign advisors may have met with X Y and Z I just uh, you know who knows if sort of that this sigint sourcing and if that was even the, the agency involved but that would have been just a, a record scratch moment of you have got to be kidding me um, and so I do think it's I do think these leaks are are significant um, because they are the leaks of this kind of specific specificity are not uncommon or uh, are, are not common they're very uncommon um, they're very consequential and I think it's it's evidence of an intelligence community that is deeply bothered by what they are seeing good morning sir uh, in Russia today, uh, one of Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy advisors met with a large 400-pound <laughs> hacker on his Sitting bed. Sitting on bed, yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Okay, let's go into object lessons. Um, I'll, go, I'll go first because mine's a little bittersweet. Uh, but I think I may have mentioned my object actually is a book I've talked about before on the podcast, uh, The Nightingale Song by Robert Timberg, which if you have not read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, but I bring it up because Bob passed away this month and there was a uh, uh, memorial service at the National Press Club Forum. And Bob was a great friend and mentor to me um, and very encouraging to me when I wrote my first book, which was largely about John Poindexter, who is one of the subjects of The Nightingale Song, along with four other men, um, John McCain, Jim Webb, uh, Oliver North and Bud McFarlane. And it follows them, all Naval Academy graduates like Bob, through the era of Vietnam and then more importantly into the Reagan administration in which they were, they were forged by their experience in Vietnam and then it follows them as they go out into the world as you know people of influence and positions of power. And a lot of it covers the Iran-Contra period as well. Um, it's just a, it's a beautiful, brilliant book. Um, I and mean, I wish I had a picture to be my object, but four of the five Nightingales were actually at this memorial. Um, everybody but Ollie North was there sitting in the front row. Wow. He was apparently in Jerusalem for work and wanted to come but couldn't. But uh, uh, Jim Webb spoke. Uh, Jim Webb also revealed, former Secretary of the Navy, that he failed sailing at Annapolis, which was hilarious. Wow. It was, really, hilarious. it was a really fun moment. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, John McCain gave just a surprisingly moving uh, uh, address. But uh, – yeah, it was just, it was a great moment and uh, really sort of one of those moments where you, Joe and I were sitting in the back and looking at the four of them up front being like, man, that is some massive collection of history sitting right there in that front row. So mm -hmm. Bob would have been very glad that they were all there. I cannot compete with that. But I also have a book. Tomorrow is the next Hoover Book Soiree and our guest uh, this uh, month is Rosa Brooks 
to discuss her new book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. So Shane has still not been to a Hoover Book Soiree. Uh, I have plans. Uh, you know, I'm just going to name and shame, as as Obama might say, of cyber threats. I just don't like Rosa. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say it. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I like and, Rosa very much, just for the record. And so uh, we hope you all will come. I also have another object lesson, which is down in the garage in the Brookings Institution. My segue is back. Oh, here oh we go it's again. segway season it, again. It is, the segue has been broken for a while, and uh, it took a long time to get it fixed. It had to go get sent back to the segue factory. Um, but it is now back in fighting form, and we're going to have a segue and fireball combo thing going. Oh. We're f- launching fireballs from the Segway. Oh, sure. You know, sure this that sounds totally legal. Yeah, yeah, and safe, too. This obsession <laughs> with tech gadgets, Ben, could lead to your early demise. Speaking of judgment and temperament, I think it's, it's worth noting that Tammy married Ben and had <laughs> two children with him. I- I would just like to point out that's just a fact that neither of us is running for president. <laughs> so our eccentricities are really our business. They're low stakes, low stakes for the nation. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, I take either one of you running. Are you kidding? Can I, I write you in? We have an excellent. I think both of us have an excellent temperament. There's uh, there's a lot of that's winning. And beautiful no. skin. Beautiful, oh. yeah, beautiful, beautiful, skin. beautiful. Very not too thick, thick or skin. thin. Very, very just the moderately right thick. The right amount of skin. Just the right amount of skin. Not too much, not, not too, too much skin. Yeah. Not too much skin. <laughs> but skin in the game. Yeah, I'm writing you in. I've just decided. Okay. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Whenever you download the podcast from iTunes or Stitcher or your other favorite podcatcher, please leave us leave us a five-star. Leave us a six-star rating. Leave us a five-star rating and then write, if I could give it six stars in the comment, I would. Just do those two things and you'll be covered. I'll take you like six seconds. It's the Come six, on. six, and six. Perfect. Brand. Oh, wait, no. That's a bad branding. <laughs> that's not a good one. It's catchy, though. Yes. And we are a devilishly good podcast. We are devilishly delightful. <laughs> uh, you can follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Our audio engineer is Quentin Jurassic. The music was performed this week by Donald Trump and the Overweight Bears. <laughs> good. I think. Yeah. All yeah. the appropriate. I think it's clear that it was. No, no, no. It was performed by Sophia Yan. It's true. We love you. You look at me like I don't believe you. Like you, no, no. It was definitely the overweight bears. It was definitely the overweight. You're bears. not going to fool us this time. Cozy uh, and the overweight bears. What's that? Cozy and the overweight bears. Cozy and the overweight bears. Now Donald, Donald Trump can only be the lead man for this. Oh no, Carter Page and the overweight bears. There you go. There you go. There you go. It's Carter Page and the overweight. They're bears. playing on the bed. Yes, they they travel on a bed and play on it and jump on it as bears are wont to do. <laughs> Out of context, this could really. Uh, our our, our podcast yeah. is produced and, <laughs> and edited by the long suffering Jen Howell. <laughs> On behalf of my friends, Tabarakoff and what is Ben Wittes and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Cheerio. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 